Like episode two, I've chosen to censor the name of the other gang member involved in Chris Kennedy's murder. You'll hear that censor throughout this episode. My name is Charlie Moss, and I've been a freelance journalist and writer for more than 10 years. I've written for The Washington Post, The New York Times, The Atlantic, Slate, and other publications. I also used to work for an online camping magazine called The Dirt. It was there that I wrote about a haunted campground just outside of Stanton, Virginia. The more I dug into the story, the more I realized that this wasn't just a simple Halloween ghost tale. It was something much deeper, much more profound than I ever imagined and I've spent the last three years finding out as much as I can about what happened at Braley Pond. This is episode four, A Troubled Childhood. The night that it happened, the incident with Chris, um, I had a dream about it. And my brother and I have only talked about what really happened one time, but I have the same dream every year on around the anniversary of it um, is what happened. Um, I see them like picking the guy up from his grandpa's house, from his grandparents, um, and them riding out to Braley Pond. And then I see like when they get out, it's just a very solemn, like the mood, the setting is just very, very emotional, very, it's like there, there was no way that the kid didn't know what was about to happen. Um, my brother was really, uh, I don't want to say just intoxicated. He was definitely um, on some kind of substances, so he wasn't himself. But mainly what I see is once everything started and the guy was actually stabbing Chris, my brother was sitting halfway up the stairs crying. Um, like he, he, and he was scared afterwards, like the guy was going to, get him too, you know? Mm -hmm. um, it's a very intense, very emotional dream. That was Seth Tinsley's sister, Stephanie, describing a dream she's had every year around the anniversary of Chris Kennedy's murder. Gang-related violence was rampant across Virginia in the early 2000s. According to an October 21st, 2003 article by the Associated Press, there were 10 nationally known gangs of Virginia at the time, including the Bloods, Crips, Latin Kings, and MS-13. In Fairfax County alone, just 30 minutes outside of Washington, D.C., 82 subsets of these gangs had been reported during that period. Fears that gang violence would spread across the Shenandoah Valley into suburbs and rural areas were proving to be very real. It had gotten so bad that after Chris Kennedy's murder, the state attorney general at the time, Jerry Kilgore, started an anti-gang task force calling the crime a wake-up call, according to a Stanton newspaper report. So the, the gang problems that hit this area were before um, uh, Chris's death at, at Braley Pond. Um, there was actually a murder, and I don't remember timelines right now, I'm sorry, but there was a murder of um, a young girl that was gang-related um, 
from our area, um, and I believe her body was dumped up towards the Augusta County, uh, Rockingham County line. Um, so that was the first time that people started to kind of stand up and take notice. This is Jenny Newman, director of the Central Shenandoah Valley Office on Youth, which was one of the many area organizations that partnered with Kilgore's anti-gang task force at the time. There was a lot of tagging going on in Waynesboro City and Stanton City and some in Augusta County. Um, and so people were complaining to the police. Uh, then we had uh, a couple of other murders that occurred um, in Stanton City. And it became obvious as this group was kind of pulling together that they needed to do something much quicker. That something was called the Saul Coalition, an acronym for Stanton, Augusta, and Waynesboro. Jenny and others were tasked with educating teachers, school counselors, and other local citizens on what gang activity looked like in the area. Tagging, gang signs, and symbols, colors, and things like that. At one point, I believe our coalition, you know, at a monthly meeting would have 40, 50 people in the room from the region of professionals coming together saying, what are we going to do next? How do, how do we get out there? How do we put out materials to educate the community? Um, and we started doing training sessions. Um, and in the midst of that was uh, the murder at Braley Pond as well. Christopher Kennedy's father, Jeff, never knew his son was in a gang. The last nine months that he was alive, he spent away from me. He was living with his friends. Because that's, that's what was important to him was his friends. And that thing that actually killed him was his friends. I'll be honest here. Of all the people I've interviewed for this piece, Jeff Kennedy was the one I was most nervous about. I wasn't sure what kind of response, if any, I'd get from him when requesting to talk to him. And how would I explain to Jeff what this podcast is about without disrespecting the memory of his son? It took me months to build up the courage to reach out to him. I decided to text him first, just to see if he'd be up for chatting. It turns out he didn't mind sharing stories about Christopher, or as he calls him, Chris Scott. Uh, he, was a, he, was, he was a good-looking kid. He wasn't very, uh, as far as uh, IQ level. It's like he, he at least he got a degree to completion where he did 12 years of school, but he actually has like a sixth grade education. Mm-hmm. And do, he was really know? good at covering it up. Even his teachers didn't know he went in regular classes. Jeff and Christopher's mother, Peggy, divorced when Christopher was just a kid. Peggy was a product of incest, and Jeff attributes this to Chris's low IQ. His mother, when, I, when we, we, we first started seeing each other, I was attracted to her because of her looks, not because of her brains. Mm-hmm. She didn't. Uh, she was like the old. She was like the middle child of twelve. Her her mother, which is now has passed away. I'm not sure where she's buried at, but she had twelve kids, all in by three different brothers. If you didn't catch that, Jeff said that Peggy's mother had twelve kids total, all of whom were fathered by her three brothers. Jeffrey married after his divorce from Peggy and claims that when it came to raising their son, he and his new wife were polar opposites in their child-rearing methods. Um, uh, the girl, she was very soft with him, and I was very strict with him because she was so soft. Mm-hmm. He would, uh, he was always running around. He meant well. He just wanted to be happy. He wasn't trying to get in trouble, but he seemed to always get in trouble all the time. Like the boys he'd hang around with in school. He got caught one time stealing cigarettes out of the store. 
So he got a little bit of trouble for that. Jeff also told me that Chris had a half-sister born a few years after him, who currently lives in Harrison, Virginia. He believes the girl's father was Peggy's brother. Christopher's mother, Peggy, died of cancer when he was 12. After she passed away, Christopher received an inheritance from her that his father put into a savings account under Christopher's name. When Christopher was old enough to move out and live on his own, he would be there waiting for him. Until then, Chris lived with his father, Jeff. But they had a hard time getting along, and their relationship suffered when Christopher hit his teenage years. When he turned 18, they had a big falling out, and Christopher moved in briefly with his uncle, Roy. And he had an uncle named Roy who found out about the money that Chris got had in a savings account. So he taught, Roy taught Chris Scott into coming and living with him. And then when the money ran out, he kicked Chris Scott out. So it wasn't, it wasn't a very good situation. So he was living on the streets. He's, oh, he was living in the streets. He was living, he was living with, well, he, yeah, he wasn't, well, he was uh, crashing on people's couches is what he was doing. He'd go from one house, stay with somebody for a while, say, welcome out, and then he'd go crash on somebody else's couch. Christopher, in other words, was homeless, and the company he kept during this time would take him down a path that would eventually lead to his murder. The last nine months that he was alive, he spent away from me. He was living with his friends, because that's, that's what was important to him was his friends. And that's who actually killed him was his friends. One of those friends was Seth Tinsley. I met Chris. He was working at he worked at McDonald's over by the mall, which is right across the street from where I lived. Chris Kennedy did not have any friends when uh before this situation happened. Uh Chris Kennedy was bullied by a lot of people in Stanton because Chris Kennedy was a little bit slow and uh, people just hung people would get him to hang around so they could pick on him. And stuff like that. And I met him by him coming out. And this group of kids out there start picking on him and stuff. So I pulled up on him, told him to leave him fuck alone. Blah, 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 blah. I pulled a knife out. Everybody ran away. I told him, I said, man, come hang out with me, man. So Chris did. Seth took him to his townhouse, and they hung out for a couple of hours before Christopher's cousin, Kenny, showed up. Kenny was like, what's my cousin doing here? I was like, that's your cousin? He's like, yeah. I was like, all right, well, that's cool, then. He's already family, fucking, you know, because at that time, for me, the gang life was, these These are my, my brothers and my sisters. Seth describes Christopher's gang initiation, which sounds a lot like a fraternity hazing. This is my family. I would die for these people. I would do anything for these people. This is, you know, so I know uh, we got him to join in. By joining in, uh... We went to a random location, 36 seconds, you had to stand in the six, is what they call it, which is basically everybody standing in the shape of uh, the Star David. Uh, everybody's had a point, and when they say go for 36 seconds, we run in and beat the shit out of his ass. And once that 36 seconds is up, he's now a member of the GD. As Seth talks about Christopher, there's a sadness in his voice. I can tell how much Seth really still cares for him, despite what happened. But he didn't have a lot of people that actually cared or liked him, for that matter. His family didn't even care about him before it even happened. Like I said, me and him hung out every day for like the last six months of his life. 
When I first reached out to Seth for an interview, I didn't expect him to respond. I mean, who would want to rehash such a turbulent time in their lives with a total stranger, especially while they're still serving time? It turns out, Seth did, but he was hesitant. I understood his skepticism and knew I needed to earn his trust. So over the next few months, Seth and I wrote letters back and forth to each other. I explained about my podcast, and he asked me questions about it, trying to gain a sense of my sincerity and telling a fair story about what happened at Braley Pond in 2003. He eventually agreed, and over the course of making this podcast, we've talked over the phone several times, exchanged numerous emails, and he even suggested I chat with his mother and his sister, which I did. As I mentioned in Episode 2, Seth is serving 25 years at Wallens Ridge State Prison in Big Stone Gap, Virginia, for his role in Christopher Kennedy's murder. He's been in prison for 18 years. I find talking with Seth incredibly easy. I'll admit, I've never spoken with a convicted murderer before, so I was nervous. I expected him to be difficult, uncooperative, void of any kind of details about the crime he committed and his feelings about it. But I was wrong. Seth seems like a nice guy, you know, for someone who's in prison for murder. What, um, what was it like when you first got in there? Like, you know, was it... It was, it was bad, um... This was back when still the penitentiary was uh, basically operated in the old way. There was no cameras, so there was no rules and regulations on anything as long as didn't anybody see nothing. And uh, a lot of the older prisons were still open at that time, and the older prisons had a lot of blind spots. Like, you couldn't even go to commissary and come back from commissary by yourself. You had to have two or three friends with you. Because if you came back from commissary or back commissary by yourself back then, the stick-up kids would be in the stairwell waiting to stab you and take your commissary. I had a few instances where I had to do a couple of things, like bash someone's head open because he told me the first chance he got he was going to rape me. So the first chance I got, I fucking cracked his skull open with a couple locks. Seth tells me he's trying to take advantage of what the prison has to offer regarding education and job training. But there's a lot lacking. Yeah, I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to pick up as much schooling as I possibly can. Um, I'm I'm definitely trying to take advantage of the system because schooling's free here. So I'm trying, if I can, to pick up at least one or two more trades before I leave the penitentiary. Mm-hmm. You know, and then most of the schooling here is trade schooling. You know, there's uh, there's no actual college courses here. Uh, that's something that I would have to do through the mail if I was interested in. I, I, I'm, I'm able and capable to do things book-wise and, and uh, writing-wise. I just do not like to write. I'm a more of a, a physical type person. I want to be mm-hmm. working a backhoe or building a building or underneath the hood of a car or something like that. That's the stuff that I truly enjoy. Seth grew up in Stanton. According to his mom, Kimberly Tinsley, he was smart and resourceful, with a kind heart. Um, here's, a, here's a prime example of what Seth was like. There was a secondhand consignment store a block from the house. And at nine years old, he went in, he looked around the entire shop, and he found this small porcelain figure of a puppy curled up, like as in sleep. And he offered to sweep the man's floors in exchange for that porcelain figurine so that he could give it to me as a gift. Mm -hmm. 
And I still have that little puppy, <laughs> by the way. Um, I definitely do. So, and this is like almost 25 years ago. Um, and Seth would, Seth practiced the fine art of negotiation with everyone from a very early age. So he would go in and, and do chores for this man in exchange for things to give as gifts to his family members. And that's, you know, that's a pretty good representation of, of his personality as a, as a young child coming up. Seth's younger sister, Stephanie Brown, remembers him having a bit of a wild streak, but he was also a good big brother to her. He was more, more of like my dad, honestly, because my dad wasn't around. We have the same mom and different dads. Okay. And uh, my dad wasn't around, um, and he taught me how to tie my shoes, how to build a treehouse, everything. That's cool. He made sure that I would eat most days. He would make sure that I got to school, everything. And so, yeah. Seth's home life wasn't exactly pleasant, though. His mother drank a lot, did drugs, wasn't around much for him and his sister, Stephanie. My mom, my mom was a functioning alcoholic. She drank like a fish out of water. Like, uh, she had, we'd have a case of beer and like 22 deuce, or 20 deuce deuces of uh, Coors Light. Before the end of the day, all that stuff's over, gone. But she still looks like she's sober. But when it came to drugs, that's where she really spiraled downhill because she was really strung out on coke and methamphetamines. I definitely think that my mom is responsible for a lot of what happened, the situation with my brother. Yeah. I, I definitely feel that. Yeah. She wasn't there for him at all. And she is the main reason why he grew up like having to be responsible, but also, you know, she pushed drugs in his face and things like that, alcohol in his face all the time. So, I mean, he wouldn't have been that kind of wild child if it wasn't for, for her to begin with. Growing up, Seth was really close to his father, who died at the end of 2019. His dad worked as a diesel mechanic and taught Seth to work on cars. Yeah, uh, I had a 79 uh, fastback Mustang when I got rocked up. I bet that thing was fast. Well, it was uh, no, it was a uh, it was a uh, little four cylinder, but uh, it was I paid four hundred fifty dollars for it when I first bought it, and it didn't mm -hmm. run at all. The four boys were rusted out. It was, it was a piece of junk, but it was a uh, it was a pet project of mine. Like my dad wanted to see me build a car basically from scratch, and so we spent fucking six months on it, working on this car. It was a pretty car. Seth has five sisters and three brothers. But out of all of them, Seth and his father had the strongest bond. I've always been my dad's favorite, and he always had uh, the highest expectations of me. Even after everything happened, he still expected me to become something better than any of his other children because he felt like I had the intelligence level to, to become something great. Despite his good relationship with his dad, Seth's mother's drug and alcohol abuse was taking a toll on him. He began acting out, hanging out with the wrong crowd, getting into trouble, which put a strain on his relationship with his father. Seth was then sent to juvenile. This would prove to be the breaking point for his dad. When Seth came back home, he got his GED and started working. He was making $300 every other week and giving half of it to his dad for rent. Because of this, Seth felt like he could come and go as he pleased. But because he was underage, his father felt differently. So Seth threatened to move out. 
After coming home from a party that same night, Seth found his bags packed on the porch. His father had kicked him out. I asked him to move back in a few times when stuff got really rough because there was a while there where I was living underneath a bridge. And uh, I asked him if I could move back in and he told me no. And I had no sympathy for my situation. He basically said I brought it upon myself, so, you know. I asked Seth how he was recruited into the Gangster Disciples, or GDs as he refers to them. Turns out it's all because of a stabbing at a party. To be accurate, Seth was the one who had gotten stabbed. Yeah, that must have been one wild party. I had gotten stabbed at a party. And uh, when I got out the hospital, I threw a party. Like, when I had gotten stabbed, that my lung had been collapsed and stuff like that. And I wasn't expected to survive because I bled out so far before I got to the hospital. They drove me to AMC and then flew me to UVA. And uh, when I got out of the hospital, I was like, I'm alive. Let's just throw a celebration for that. And so I threw a celebration. And when I threw the celebration, I met the GDs. And they looked like a nice, tight-knit group that had each other's backs and stuff like that. And at that time, I didn't have nobody like that. I didn't really have a family. I didn't have a crew to have my back. And I looked at it like the camaraderie of it all, the, the the effect that people hold you down no matter what, right, wrong, or indifferent. They're going to be there for you, stuff like that. And I was like, yeah, that's something that I want to be a part of. But I, like I said, at that time, I was 16 years old, so it wasn't like I knew any better, you know. Here's Jenny Newman again with the Central Shenandoah Valley Office on Youth. Gangs flourish as a replacement for a family. It's a replacement for a need that an individual has. So if you're not getting, if you're not getting what you need from your community, um, if you're not getting what you need from your family, and, and I guess I should start with the family first, and your school system, and then your community, if you don't feel like you belong in any of those, you're going to Seek out where you can fit in. And gangs are a family. They are very, very good at identifying the individual that feels a little bit lost, a little bit forlorn. They still may not help you with what you're struggling with, but they're going to fulfill you and you feel like you belong. Seth's sister Stephanie remembers when he first joined the GDs. Um, I think it was like, I think he was acting out. I think it was... um. A lot of like peer pressure, the people he was hanging out with. Um, it wasn't it wasn't really his thing because he's not he's always been like the alpha male, you know. He's not a follower, and um, he doesn't he didn't ever really have like one set group of friends that he would hang out with. So it was different for him. I don't think that it was uh, something that he had planned on doing or even really wanted to do. As Seth told me about his time growing up, I found myself relating to him. I came from a similar dysfunctional background. My dad left my twin sister and me when we were born, and we didn't meet him until we were around 18. Four years later, he died. My mom was an alcoholic. Thankfully, she's recovered now. But there was a lot of instability in our lives. Unlike Seth's mom, my mother was not a functioning alcoholic. When she drank, it destroyed our lives over and over again. She'd start drinking after being sober a few months, start writing bad checks, commit some identity fraud, get arrested, lose her job, her apartment, her car, and then wind up homeless. 
Then she'd get arrested again, sober up, get back on her feet, and do it all over again. I remember times finding her passed out in the bed, unresponsive. When my sister and I were five, we moved in with my aunt, who was strict. Though I never got into the kind of trouble Seth or even Chris did, I floundered in school, to the point where my aunt feared for my future. After getting into an argument over her threatening to charge me rent because I had flunked out of college at 18, I moved out. So yeah, to an extent, I get it. Despite their differences, though, after Seth was arrested for Chris's murder, his dad was there for him. When I got locked up on his charge, I guess, and and in a way, he didn't want to believe that I had anything to do with it, you know? So, and he he hired a lawyer to help me out, and uh, he hired a private investigator to uh, look into the matter, and, uh, you know, uh, he believed that I had been set up which, I mean, I kind of had been, but not overtly. It was some. It was in a roundabout way. But uh, he just, I mean, he refused to see the bad. Seth befriended Christopher because, initially, he felt sorry for him. Seth took it upon himself to defend Christopher when, essentially, no one else would. And they became tight. Here's Seth's mom again, Kimberly Tinsley talking about Christopher and Seth's blooming friendship. Um, it was quite easygoing. Um, Seth is very charming and charismatic. And Chris kind of fit into that niche rather well. They became really good friends. Um, Chris was not mentally as bright as Seth was, but they tended, whatever offset them tended to complement their relationship as friends. Chris and Seth were very close um, to the point Chris stayed at our house quite a lot, and even his laundry was even mixed in with the rest of the household laundry. That's how often he was there. And and it just, that's one of the things that made that event so hard, I mean, just so, so difficult, was that not only did I lose my son to the criminal justice system, I lost an extended member of our family to this murder. Seth was the youngest member of the Gangsta Disciples, one of the three local gang affiliations in the Stanton and Greater Augusta County area at the time. Up until probably about 2000, that's when the more mainstream gangs came along. But before then, we had a lot of local gangs and stuff like that. Just people going around tagging stuff, and, uh, destroying property and stuff like that. You know, There's a lot of fistfights. A lot of fistfights. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 2003. There was a lot of murders in 2003, and a lot of them were gang-related, and a lot of them after that were gang-related. And uh, when and basically the mainstream gangs that hit there was the Crips, the GDs, and the Bloods. And everybody that was in those gangs in that area didn't actually know the meaning behind this stuff or nothing like that. They just knew, all right, I'm a Blood. I beef with Crips and GDs. I'm a GD. I beef with Crips and Bloods. I'm a Crip. I beef with... GDs and bloods, you know, and so anytime you've seen someone wearing a, a different color bandana, it was 
basically a war, you know, and a lot of people died for that. Here's Kevin Robertson again, Christopher's childhood friend, about the gang situation in the Stanton area back in 2003. The gang activity around here is terrible, terrible, terrible. My life's too short, I'm telling you, sure. You know, Scott never even, you know, once, once even thought about, you know, talking about a gang or even hanging out with the kind of people. Just, but when he got out of that car that day, he had a bandana around his head, and then the other boys had bandana. I said, no, 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 come with me. Uh-uh. I should have just, I should have just put him in a headlock, choked him out, and threw him in my truck and took him home. That's what I should have done. I hate myself for it. Not only had Christopher joined a gang, but he was also on drugs. I asked Kevin why he thinks Christopher got involved in gang life. He believes it was because of a girl. And she was involved with them kind of drugs. So I guarantee it, when he got on them drugs, right then and there, he liked it so much he wanted to do it again, do it again. Kevin's a former drug addict himself, so he knows the effect drugs had on his friend. Like, I, I, I ain't gonna lie to you, I'm a recovering addict myself. You know, I used to be bad, 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 really bad. I mean, where I have to, you know, I never had to hurt anyone to actually get my high, but you know, um, being the youngest out of four boys, you know, I never had to worry about paying for it or, cause my brothers always got high. So after you, after you get high one time, especially with methamphetamine, you're gonna want it again. Jenny Newman talks about the role gangs play when it comes to drugs in the Stanton and larger Shenandoah Valley area. We are in, unfortunately, a prime location for um, multiple types of trafficking with um, 81, um, Interstate 81 and 64. We are in a crossroads for um, Florida to Washington, D.C. to New York City, back down to Texas, Arizona and over to California. Um, so cartels from Mexico can easily um, also come this direction uh, with, with some of that. And we know that they use gangs to move those things often. According to local news reports, fellow gang members were suspicious that Christopher wanted to get out of the gang and that he might go to the police to snitch on all the illegal activity that was going on within the GDs. There was also a rumor that he had made sexual advances toward the gang queen, Candace Knott, possibly even sleeping with her. Here's Seth Tinsley again. Kenny started getting to the point where, like, he didn't want to be a member of the gang anymore. He didn't want to be around the stuff. Then uh, Candace put it out there. Huh? This is Chris that you're talking about? Yeah, Christopher Scott Kennedy. I uh, I called him Kenny. My bad. Uh, yeah, I used to call him Scott. He went by Scott. But, uh... He started acting like he didn't want to be a member of the gang anymore. And a couple of few other things happened. Like Candy said that she he had forced himself on her and had raped her and stuff like that. And there was this long, drawn-out conversation in the kitchen one night about what should we do about him. And Kenny and Candy were the main contributors to the conversation because... At that time, they were the highest-ranking members that were not locked up. So they decided that Kenny needed to die. Again, Seth meant Christopher Kennedy, not Kenny. Kenny's Christopher's cousin, I mentioned back in episode two, 
Kenneth Sniper Jackson, the guy Seth told Chris was in the hospital to lure him into Kalani Noah's car so they could take him to Braley Pond. So just to confirm your suspicions, Kenny was never in the hospital. It was all just a trap. Christopher's body was discovered by a fisherman the morning after his murder. Here's Kevin Robertson. A uh, fisherman, um, uh, I don't know, a fisherman just one morning decided to go fishing down there and uh, saw a body uh, floating above the water. Yeah, he was stripped, naked. Here's Seth talking about getting arrested after local police traced the murderer back to him and And the fisherman who found the body the next day reported it. And when they reported the body, his one-again, off-again girlfriend told the police that we were the last persons that were seen with him, that we had picked him up in the truck. So when they come in, they kicked in the apartment, they arrested us. Kevin Robertson has a friend that witnessed the whole thing. And actually, uh, my buddy lives right down the road. He said, dude, you, I've never seen so many cops in my life. He said, dude, they were just flying by. I mean, book. I was like, oh my God. Two days later, uh, SWAT team uh, raided the uh, house. That's how long it took them to figure it out. 38 hours. When they arrest us, they put the truck up on a rollback. So the way I'm looking at it is at this at this juncture, the entire situation, the way everything's going down, as long as everybody remains silent, there's no way possible that we can be tried or convicted on this murder. It's not possible. They have the wrong vehicle. They have no physical evidence. And they have no testimony. No. So they've got me in the interrogation room. I'm being interrogated. I'm telling them that I have no knowledge of the situation. I'm telling them I don't even know Scott, you know. They pop up a couple hours later. They've got an evidence bag with a knife in it and another evidence bag with a bunch of ashes in it where had been testifying against everything and told them that this is where we got rid of all the stuff. Four people were ultimately convicted of Chris Kennedy's murder. Candace Nicole Knott, who was 29 at the time. Kenneth Sniper Jackson, also 29. 24-year-old and Seth Tinsley, who was 17. All four of them are still serving time in prison for their actions. Here's Jeff Kennedy, Chris's father, on how he heard about Chris's death. Yeah. Those last nine months that this guy was alive, he was distant from me. I said he was he was living around on his friend and stuff, sleeping on their couches. And he were he was working at McDonald's at that time, up on Avenue. Hmm. And uh, that's how I found out everything. Go up there and talk to his friends and stuff. The people who he worked with at McDonald's. I didn't think much of them neither, but they gave me the answers to what I, what was going on. The police had no idea what happened. Cause I, I found out who killed him from talking to his friends. Had one friend mad at another friend. One one friend would tell me one piece of advice. You know, one part of the story. Another friend would tell me another part of the story, and I finally I put two and two together and came up with the answer. Because the cops didn't find out who killed him. I found out who killed who, who killed him. And I passed that information on to the cops, and they arrested him. Seth expresses remorse to me for Christopher's murder. He tells me about the meth he was on at the time, and basically just how fucked up he was back then. Uh, um, 
I don't know if you've ever done methamphetamine, but it is uh, a, a hell of a trigger drug when it comes to emotions. And you can go from one extreme to the next in an in a instant when you're on that drug. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I was really badly strung out on methamphetamines at the time. I was doing crystal meth really hard, like, when I say really hard, I mean like every day for the entire last year that I was on the street. So um, one minute you could be like having a, a conscience about something, and the next minute uh, a, a switch just, I don't know how to really put it into uh, a, a words to where you could understand the concept, it's just like a, a switch will flip in your head, and you'll go from one extreme to the next in a heartbeat, you know? I asked Kimberly about what went through her head when she found out about Chris's murder. Oh my gosh. Um, I actually, um, I had this overwhelming feeling three days before Seth was arrested that something was just so terribly wrong with one of my children. And Seth was the only one that I couldn't make contact with. And that was extremely unusual. And then I saw a picture of a tattoo on the front page of the newspaper. And that's when I knew that Chris had been murdered and that my son was involved. And I immediately called the police department and asked them if they had my son in custody. Now, mind you, he had just turned 17, so he was still a minor, and they had him in custody for at least 24 hours and made no contact with me at all, which is totally against the law, but that's irrelevant. Um, I... Honestly, it's like, as a parent, it's one of those moments of insanity that your mind just cannot wrap itself around. My son's friend was murdered and my son was involved. Here's Seth's sister again, Stephanie. My brother is one of the most, he's one of the most true-hearted people that I know in the sense of like, he is what he is. He doesn't claim to be anything that he's not. If he says he did something, he did it. If he says he didn't, I believe him. You know, he's a really good judge of character when it comes to people. You know, he's just, my brother is, it's, it's just a really sad situation because he was so young and he didn't deserve to be caught up in all that shit. Even though it happened almost 20 years ago, around my way, this is still a really relevant situation. People still talk about it to this day. Whether you believe in the paranormal or not, it's hard to deny Christopher's spirit still haunts those lives he touched. Kevin remembers a strange incident that happened to him at Braley Pond after Christopher's murder. Yeah, Christopher's death really hit me hard. Like, I mean, fanatical. You know, I mean, we were we the same bus. I mean, I mean, grew up, I mean, as brothers. And, uh, I went up there one night. And, um, and, uh, I got out, walked to the top, and then just, you know, just, I don't know, it was about 9.30. And my, uh, my, the mother of my child called me and says, oh, I need you, I need you to come here. You need to have to check with your daughter. 
I was like, I said, yeah, I said, I'm, I'm coming. I said, you know, I just need time for myself right now. And she's like, well, make time for her. I was like, okay, I'm coming. So I get in the vehicle, brand new vehicle. <laughs> and I started. It will not start. It will not start. I was, I was no clicker, no nothing. I'm like, what on earth? I said, it's a rental. <laughs> what is going on? And then I sat there and I sat there and I swear, man, it's just, I got cold. I got really, really cold. Like this chill just come over me and it was, it was in the middle of summer. Chill come over me like I've been sitting in a frozen car for about a day. Just like, and I just went like this in my head. And next thing I know, I, and it starts. What, I said, what on earth? It's like, I don't know, it's like, I don't know if maybe Scott maybe tried to grab my hand when he was in the truck with me or something and just, it would not start. Set two feels Christopher's presence, even after all of these years. Since being in prison, I, I've felt a couple of times where that, like, I've been, like, there's been a few instances where, like, I was in the hole when I was asleep and I'm in the cell by myself, so there's absolutely nothing moving around but me in that cell, you know what I mean? And I'm laying in bed sleep and all of a sudden my cup just goes falling off the shelf and shit and I get up and I get this feeling like Chris is like, look, I'm just reminding you I'm still here that I'm not going anywhere. What Happened at Braley Pond is produced by me, Charlie Moss. The exceptional Bill Colrus is our story editor. Our music and sound design are by the legendary Mike Triplecock. Our website, which can be found at www.braileypondpodcast.com, was created by the outstanding Ashton Lance. Our podcast logo was designed by the phenomenal Shelton Brown. Additional artwork is by the incredibly patient Keith Finch. Special thanks to Monty Brock for his scientific insight, and my wife Vanessa, who was overwhelmingly supportive during this three-year process. Mm-hmm.